0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The lockdown is easing by the day, it seems, and according to Boris Johnson, the nation is coming out of hibernation. As the prime minister admits, the frost could yet return. Coronavirus has not gone away, and his chief medical officer is warning that an uptick in cases is a real threat. We'll be discussing the prime minister's decision to open things up, and what comes next for the country, and what comes next for him. His poll ratings have plummeted since the start of the COVID-19 outbreak. What can Johnson do to regain a sense of momentum and control? Well, there's always Brexit. The campaign to take the UK out of the EU got Johnson into number 10, and there's now just half a year remaining before the UK leaves the transition period. Is Brexit about to leapfrog coronavirus back to the top of the news agenda? We'll take a look. Joining me in our virtual studio are three IFG stalwarts who've been following every Brexit twist and turn and every stage of the government's response to the coronavirus. Senior Fellow Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hiya. Brexit Programme Director Joe Owen. Hi, Joe. Hello. And IFG Associate Raphael Hogarth. Welcome.
1: Hello.
0: Let's start with the exit from lockdown. At the Downing Street press conference on Tuesday, which the government announced was going to be the final one of the daily coronavirus press conferences, the Prime Minister's message was simple. The hibernation is beginning to end and the bustle is coming back. Restaurants, pubs, museums, galleries, playgrounds, hairdressers, but not a few things like gyms and ale bars, all opening on July the 4th. And the two-metre rule is coming down to one metre plus. He got the headlines he wanted, but the scientists are sounding more cautious. Pubs are back, businesses have to be COVID secure, families can now meet up indoors, people can go camping. Raphael, is this effectively the end of the lockdown?
1: I think in a couple of senses, it is the end of lockdown. Um, First of all, since the imposition of total lockdown, if you like, at the end of March, the government has tweaked the rules a, a few times to turn them into lockdown plus a little bit of freedom. What this effectively does is takes us to normal life Minus a bit of freedom, so that you know the big rules uh, that we've been feeling in our everyday lives—that you can't stay overnight at somebody's uh, house without a reasonable excuse, that there are sort of no gatherings allowed except outside and up to six people—those uh, rules are going. Uh, and the other major sense in which this is a sort of step change uh, is that up until now, uh, the kind of main elements of lockdown have been regulated by the criminal law. Uh, and, you know, you, you could get stopped by the police and given a fine uh, for breaking the rules. And now we're moving into a phase of guidance in which the government says that it's trusting the common sense of the British people to do the right thing. So although, as you say, some restrictions remain, I think this is you know by far the biggest change that we've had since the lockdown came in.
0: And there are still some things that are regulations, aren't there? For example, not meeting uh, in groups of more than 50, I think it is, which can be enforced by police.
1: Yeah, so there there will still be rules about large gatherings, as you say, uh, in England. Um, And other than that, the social contact bits of the lockdown, so kind of where you can go, where you can spend the night, when and with whom, will now be a matter of guidance. The businessy bits of the lockdown, I think, are still going to be uh, to some extent regulated by law, first of all, because, you know, the business closures, I think, are going to be regulated by law. But also what the government has told us, and, and indeed it's, it's published a lot of this, is that there's going to be really detailed sector-specific guidance for how different types of businesses have to operate in this new world. So, you know, uh, where your hand sanitizer has to be, your shift working patterns, your one-way systems and all of that, uh, to make pubs and shops, uh, at, at, And so on safe. Uh, And although that stuff is guidance, there are legal duties uh, on uh, employers, first of all, to take reasonable steps to keep their employees safe and also to take reasonable steps to avoid risks to the health and safety of people that are affected by the business that they carry on.
0: Right. So they're legal obligations and they've got every incentive to because presumably if they don't, they're open, uh, they're liable uh, and, and could have cases brought against them by their employees or customers or whatever. They could have cases
1: brought against them, but they they could also face enforcement action from local authorities or the health and safety executive if those bodies actually have the kind of resources and capacity to go around inspecting shops, making sure they've got hand sanitizer everywhere.
0: Has it shed any more light on what schools have to do and what um, is under their discretion to do in in reopening? Because that has obviously been one of the big stumbling blocks in getting the country back to normal.
1: I think we're still waiting for quite a lot of detail about how schools are going to work uh, when the big reopening comes uh, next academic year, but I think the truth is, given that the government has said that its objective is for you know, every child to be back in school full time next academic year, um, th- there's there's to some extent there's limited scope for the kind of serious mitigations of risk that we see. Uh, for businesses because you know if if every child is in school all the time then there's only so much you can do to keep them apart from
0: one another. Joe you were one of the authors of our paper on the strategy for exiting lockdown how has the government done?
2: So I think the government would say that they've followed the steps that they set out in their white paper in kind of early mid-May they put forward three stages for unlocking Uh, they talked about kind of different dates which I think broadly They have kept to so from the kind of high level. I think they'd say we set out a plan and pretty much we've stuck to it. But you know, as you've mentioned already, uh, the prime minister's polling has taken a bit of a hit uh, in that interim time, and I think there are probably kind of if you if you say it's not really been plain sailing. I think it's fair to say, and if you look at the key factors, I think there are probably two pretty important ones. And I think um, first of all the Dominic Cummings issue put actually quite a lot of pressure on the government and I think lost them a fair amount of goodwill, which actually was in quite high supply before then. And also, I think, a sense of central control. Up until that point, everything was kind of hinging on big prime ministerial interventions. And since then, there's been kind of dribs and drabs coming out through daily press conferences. And it's felt slightly less kind of coherent, I think, at points uh, in comparison To before May. And then the second big area I'd point to is the implementation side of things, whether that's testing, the app, track and trace. Raphael's mentioned schools, where it seems like the putting in place of some of the announcements has come more slowly and quite a bit more slowly than some of the announcements themselves. And I think there is still a question, I think, with a lot of people about how ready are we actually to respond to flare ups and what will be the plan if there are certain isolated outbreaks and do we have the infrastructure and the kind of things in place to manage it but the last point i would make is that actually you know in our paper one of the things we pointed to do is some of the really difficult trade offs that will be coming between uh, public health and the economy and you can see that the economy has been driving more and more of the government's thinking uh, in recent weeks but the furlough scheme is still yet to come to an end and some of those big the kind of economic support measures that are still in place there are still some extraordinary difficult decisions for the government coming down the track on those so even if we've kind of Done quite a lot of the, 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 um, the decisions in releasing around public health. There are some really, really big, knotty problems on the economy still to come.
0: Jill, you're very familiar with the, the center of government. What does this say to you about how that centre of government has been working?
3: I think it's uh, I think a big question marks about the effectiveness of the centre. Um, and I think that's where there have been shortcomings. We've seen various attempts to rearrange it. We've had a rearrangement of the cabinet committee structure with this uh, you know, Strategy Committee and Operations Committee, chaired by Michael Gove, replacing the four different strands. We've had the appointments of some of these outsiders to run specific task forces. Uh, we've had the appointment of Simon Case to bolster the Prime Minister's operation inside Number 10, as Permanent Secretary Number 10. But I don't think anyone would say that, uh, that the centre is showing that it actually has the capacity both to announce and, as Joe said, to deliver at the moment. It's quite interesting, I thought, when the Prime Minister appeared before the Liaison Committee, he, I think, joked, but it may have been serious, that he wasn't allowed to set any targets or deadlines. Uh, he'd been banned from doing that. Because one of the things that has been a problem for the government is it's tying itself to very firm dates or very, very ambitious targets. And then has been very reluctant to... To admit that it's missing those targets even though it's doing quite well actually it's used things you know to drive up numbers of tests but not get necessary get to a thousand a hundred thousand only uh on the more objective measure so i think it sort of tied itself a bit in knots it committed itself to go back to schools it might have been one of those things that the government rushed out as an announcement to deflect from the cummings affair rushed in with a date but clearly didn't have a backup plan on how this was going to happen
0: and, and, and in fact, had a had a a, a, um, a rule at that time of no more than fifteen children uh, per class, which was going to make it incredibly hard to get get the children back on. Yeah, I think the, the lack
3: of connection between the aspiration, the target, and actually how you're going to get to do it has been a very notable feature throughout, and an almost sense that uh, you know if we announce it, it will happen without actually knowing how to make it happen. I think that's, that's a well-known civil service weakness. I think it will play into the agendas of various people who think that that is a, you know, uh, a weakness that needs to be addressed, but it has been very noticeable in this crisis that there has been uh, a big announcement action gap
0: and, and you were just describing some of the ways in which they're trying to get a grip, bringing a lot of what you might call their own people in, on, uh, as well as the civil service. And we're hearing a lot uh, that Michael Gove and indeed Dominic Cummings want um, a big shake-up of the centre of government and, and of the civil service. Uh, do you think that their steps will work? I think we don't yet really
3: know what this looks like or what it's sort of intended to achieve. We do know from the work we've done that one of the things that almost every prime minister comes in uh, and is surprised by the lack of support that they have at the centre, the very, very small size of number 10, uh, and the very sort of disparate operation that is the Cabinet Office, how many people in the Cabinet Office are there actually there pursuing the Prime Minister's agenda, how many uh, see themselves as serving the government more widely. And I think it's quite interesting. If you look at other you know, similar Westminster systems, look down to Australia and New Zealand, they have a thing explicitly called the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and it's a very interesting thing about whether uh, having a more effective centre that can sort of prosecute prime ministerial aims and priorities across government is part of the Cummings plan. We're told, actually, that he, uh, he, of course, when he was an advisor at the Department of Education, the absolute last thing he wanted, he and Michael Gove wanted then, was to be gripped by number 10. They regarded that as a complete anathema and really disliked the centre. So I'm not sure that this plan is totally well worked out at the moment. We'll uh, have to see what develops.
0: Yeah, well, the big difference, obviously, is that they are now at the centre. Um, Joe, would you, would you agree with that, a feeling of getting a grip?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you can see, um, as Jill mentioned, some of the the moves that have already happened about trying to get the structures in place um, to, to get a to get a grip on the kind of the, the programme across government. And I think particularly, I mean, you saw it was the the, the Prime Minister's ambition on Brexit, which I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to, was to have um, much more centralised control, him running it through the number 10 team with David Frost. So um, it seems as though that is the kind of um, the reveal preference, if you like, for the big issues. But as Jill said, this is much bigger and and the kind of the bits aren't all in place yet.
0: And much bigger, and as you said, so very, very hard to run everything from the centre. Just finally, before we leave this section, Raphael, your, your view on how the police and courts have come through this this episode?
1: Well, I mean, as far as the police are concerned, they had an extraordinarily difficult job, I think, in the first weeks and months of the lockdown, because overnight uh, they had a whole new set of relatively complicated and uh, sometimes quite difficult to interpret rules um, that they were out on the streets uh, enforcing, and I think they they were having to enforce those rules at times with n- not enough or not sufficiently accurate guidance from government and uh, leadership bodies about you know when somebody can go to the shop or when somebody can move house or or, or whatever it might be. I think there were like really bad examples earlier early on. Police leadership bodies learnt quite quickly, circulated better guidance. Uh, And I think the police probably lost a little bit of public trust in those opening stages, but were relatively impressive in how quickly they uh, adapted. As far as the courts are concerned, um, uh, I mean, obviously, there has been uh, an astonishing acceleration of the virtual justice agenda. um, But there are still uh, partly as a result of the crisis, but actually... Uh, very much driven by pressures that existed before the crisis um, very very big backlogs in parts of the judicial system and in particular in the area of criminal justice and so I think there are massive challenges coming down the track for the government as to sort of how they can get that system uh, back on track uh, and get people tried reasonably promptly and justly uh, once things are looking something like business as usual
0: i'm sure I'm sure you're right that that's where the immediate focus is going to be. There are also dangling questions though it seems to me about uh, that old that old question of whether there are too many um, police forces and some kind of amalgamation is is needed, but the uh, spotlight of attention may have moved on from that one. yeah, I mean I, I think
1: you know obviously every police force um, fiercely protects its operational uh, independence, and one of the things that we have noticed during this crisis is that um, rules that apply to everybody have been enforced at times differently uh, in different well, certainly in different parts of the country, but even within different parts of devolved nations uh, where different English police forces at work, are at work. I mean, that that's why uh, one of the things that we said early on is that there needed to be national guidance promulgated to police forces so that even if they are very keen to protect their operational independence, uh, you know, the law in Manchester is the same as the law in London on the ground. And, and I think we, you know, we did move in that direction, so that was a good thing.
0: And Jill, just finally, uh, you know, we hope we've seen peak virus. Have we seen peak science as well? Scientists are now taking a much more muted role. I
3: think. Uh, I think we probably have. I think. Uh, I think it's very interesting. Uh, the government all along should have been much clearer that there were a number of factors that they had to be that they had to weigh. Uh, we made that point in the paper that Joe, Joe wrote that you mentioned earlier that, you know, there are science factors, but there are wider factors, you know, wider health beyond the virus, mental health, um, educational outcomes, social outcomes, and of course, the economy. Uh, And I think ministers should have actually fronted with the public all along that they were having to weigh all these factors, whereas the scientists that they had sitting on stage were looking at part of the picture, helping ministers form that picture, but they didn't have the total picture. And that's why now, if you're a scientist sitting on SAGE, your incentives are to be relatively risk-averse. If I was sitting on SAGE, what's the the point in saying, yes, go ahead, uh, loosen up or whatever? It's much easier on SAGE to say, I'm not sure it's time yet. Uh, This is what the evidence shows. Because, of course, ministers are making really difficult choices about risk in conditions of extreme uncertainty. They're very unpalatable choices that ministers having to make with huge big downsides both for uh, health and the economy if they get those judgments a bit wrong. But I think ministers is a bit paying their price for having put the science too centre stage early on almost as a bit of a human shield against what they were doing uh, and now have to take full responsibility. I think that is actually a better place uh, to be and I think we're actually having a better conversation now about some of those choices than we were very early on.
0: Let's move on to the question of full responsibility and the Prime Minister himself. The UK has suffered one of the highest coronavirus death rates and the economy has taken a huge hit, the extent of that yet to be seen, but are some international predictions thinking that the UK will be one of the hardest hit among the more affluent nations. So what can Boris Johnson do to regain the sense of momentum that swept him into number 10? We've heard and we've had discussions with those close to plans for a big reshaping of the heart of government, including the Cabinet Office, which I was referring to before. Jill, is, do you think that this kind of uh, getting a grip that we've been discussing can um, do something for Boris Johnson's own stature in this?
3: I think, well, we're promised, uh, promised a sort of July of trying to reset the agenda. Uh, so I think we're promised a big speech. Uh, we're promised something from Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, people there talk about the uh, uh, July announcement. And uh, I think the government's very keen to do things, one of which is to stop everything being just about coronavirus, uh, because while that was quite good for the government in the early days when there was very high levels of trust, I think people want to move on. It doesn't really, as an issue, play to the Prime Minister's strengths. The Prime Minister is, I think, much more comfortable being upbeat and talking about future prospects, so I think he wants to reset that agenda. And I think they want to go back to some of the sort of promises that they were making in the election. What can they do to emerge from the recovery, but not just sort of go back as we were, try and sort of restore the economy as far as they could, but to try and address some of those very long-standing issues that they identified and that drove that big election victory. You know, redistributing economic activity more widely, levelling up. Uh, we're told that the prime minister's new three-word slogan is out of number 10, so it has to have three words in it, uh, is build, build, build. So we're clearly going to see some big moves on infrastructure, uh, maybe a sort of rewiring and rebooting of the Northern powerhouse and spread that elsewhere. So I think it's very interesting to see how far the government is able to, if it might like to sort of take back control of the agenda, not having it just driven by news events. And I think that's going to be what they want to do before whatever sort of summer break they manage to engender in late July and August. And the first bit, uh, that's one reason I think why. The Prime Minister has been so keen to uh, get the economy back to functioning at some sort of something that, re- that represents a bit nearer normality, get people out and about, get people shopping for Britain, things like that. So pretty interesting to see where they can do that.
0: Uh, do you think there's room for all that to move on?
2: I mean, it'll be interesting i think I mean I think Jill's right. a lot of the promises that you saw in the um, the manifesto that were kind of statements of intent rather than kind of crystal clear projects and policy changes like leveling up will um, likely be or well, i'll be very surprised if it's not a big part of these interventions that we're expecting to see from both uh, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. And as Jill said, um, I mean, there's been stuff going around, I think the Telegraph been talking about the long list of shovel ready infrastructure projects uh, that they might be trying to inject. I mean, whether there's kind of space and capacity is is an interesting question. I mean, just at a kind of political level, you think that given the economic decisions on just unlocking that are coming down the track, that's going to that is going to soak up a huge amount of kind of time and energy and political capital in the autumn, and there's also obviously Brexit, which will also likely suck up a lot of time, effort, and political capital. Because, and I'm sure we'll come onto this. Let's remember that all of those big changes that are still coming from us leaving the European Union haven't actually happened yet. Uh, the big practical changes uh, about our immigration system, the border. Yeah,
0: we are coming. We are coming on Brexit, Joe. <laughs> yeah,
2: fine. So I won't. Uh, I won't go too. Good.
0: But I think. I can. I can feel you. I can feel you itching to get onto it. I promise you, we're coming on to it
2: all that stuff does squeeze out time and energy and political capital to do other things. Um, so it will be really interesting to see um, how much that features uh, in in the interventions that are coming down the track.
0: Yeah. And, and Raphael, one big um, project that is not going ahead right at the moment is the one at West Ferry at Printworks that has got um, uh, the government and uh, Robert Jenrick into a bit of trouble at the moment. What's your take on how serious this argument is for the uh, for the government
1: well you know obviously the government's strategy with this is it's is the same as its strategy with the dominic cummings row which is try to um ride it out and say the matter is closed uh, and hope everybody gets bored with it and i think um you know in a sense it might be a little bit easier to do that with the robert generic issue than it was with the dominic cummings issue as we were calling it um because the generic affair is just a little bit more difficult to understand uh you know, the 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 background here uh is that uh Robert Jenrick overruled his planning officials to approve uh this development uh by a developer owned by a Tory party donor, and he did that after sitting next to the Tory party donor at a um party fundraiser, and he did it before. Uh, that donor gave some money to the Conservative Party. so
0: And several days before, the developer would have been liable for some tens of millions more. Yes, just, the in time, just in
1: time to avoid a... Uh, a big developer liability. And also, perhaps more interestingly than that, I think, uh, is the fact that uh, Generic's planning official said, uh, well, we're sceptical about this scheme because there is not enough affordable housing in it. The initial offer... Uh, suggested that there was going to be a high proportion of affordable housing. Uh, and Jenrick said, that doesn't matter. We'll take the lower level of affordable housing. Uh, and that actually possibly saved the developer more money. That decision that that decision possibly saved the developer around 100 million quid. Um, so, you know, Jenrick has already conceded.
0: So this is I mean, this is a pretty, pretty extraordinary um you know, a sequence of events and large sums of money, and then the uh, Robert Jenrick himself saying, "Look, um, uh, yes, there might be an appearance of bias. Of bias, so I, I'm, um, you know, withdrawing myself from this. Um, it's it's the kind of thing that you could see provoking outrage. But um, as you say, they, they're kind of you don't know where public opinion is going to fall on these things. the Dominic Cummings one are. Um, uh, so many people identified with that so quickly and said, "Look, I, you know, I've, I've, I've sacrificed myself, and I haven't gone and done these things, and here's he gone and done it." But uh, Jill, you have been writing about this as well? What's your, just what your take on on how much um, trouble, um, even even saying that we never know quite how these things land, how much trouble could this be for the government?
3: It could be quite big trouble if it goes on, and the Labour opposition now seems to be hugely more effective at making uh, making these. Uh, these points at the government. They can't rely on an ineffective opposition, which they have been able to rely on uh, before. I think the real danger, is, as Raphael says, this is quite a complicated story. Who sat next to whom at what dinner, you know, what was in the text message and things like that. But I think there is a thing that happens to governments when there is the appearance that they are not on your side, they're on someone else's side. And one of the reasons for that is money. And I think that just gets a bit difficult you know, if I'm reading the Daily Mail, very widely read, national tabloid, uh, a paper I would normally assume is on the government side, uh, saying, you know, running headline after headline, uh, for whatever reasons, saying, you know, Minister's done it, cosy favours for Tory donor, cosy text messages. I think is the headline this morning. You now, I'll remember that this is a, a, you know, a sleazy government. Um, those charges of sleaze, people won't probably remember why, but those charges of sleaze, lack of trust, uh, combined I think with the impression that coronavirus has not been handled very competently, I think that can be quite a toxic set of problems for a government. Uh, It's got four years to try to recover from those, but the John Major government never recovered its uh, reputation for competence after Black Wednesday in 1982. It still had four and a half years to run, didn't recover that, and then was overlain by things like cash for questions, various other things, which just gave the impression that this was not a government for the people. So I think it's just... Uh, just one of those things that will people will remember. They won't probably remember why. They may not remember Robert Jenrick if he departs relatively quickly. They might do. He might be a very senior figure in the cabinet. Who knows by the time we go into the next election? Uh, so I think the government needs to needs to watch this one because it's uh, it's a story that's been a slow burn. Uh, I think they. Today programme, today, use the line about Robert Jenrick being lucky about the amount of competing news. Uh, but that's going away a bit and people are focusing on this now much more than they were.
0: Yes, and they're, fo- they're focusing on it in the way that they didn't on the, the Jennifer Arcuri story of the, the, um, uh, the woman who got man- money for her business development when she had a very close friendship with uh, Boris Johnson as, uh, as mayor.
1: I absolutely agree that the government is now facing an opposition that exploits scandals much more skillfully um, than it used to. And I think Keir Starmer's strategy on this has been quite interesting because, again, uh, unlike what his predecessor would have done, he didn't come straight out and say, he must go, I'm calling for him to go. Uh, instead, uh, just as last time, he said, well, this is a matter of the prime minister's judgment. And he mm. focuses the scandal, which is all about lack of trust, uh, in precisely the, you know, the figure, uh, where the public worries about that, you know, B- Boris Johnson's polling ratings on trust, for instance, uh, are not great. So, um, Ke- I think Keir Starmer is really good, um, when these things flare up, of seeming like the reasonable one and making it all about Boris Johnson's personal judgment.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And going back to Jill's point, we're stacking up the number of things, it seems to me, where people are saying, well, the government's got four years to get over this or manage it. But um, uh, the longer that list is, the quicker those four years are going to go by. Okay, we are now going to come on to what Joe is dying to talk about. We have just passed the fourth anniversary of the referendum on the UK's membership of the EU. In many ways, though, the 23rd of June 2016 seems much longer ago than that. Brexit gave rise, of course, to this extraordinary package in British politics, all that vote did. The clashes between government and parliament, government and the Supreme Court, clashes within the government, and Johnson's election victory. Until this year, of course, when coronavirus swept Brexit off the front pages. But that is changing as talks intensify between the EU and the UK and their efforts to forge a future relationship. So are they going to get there?
2: That's a very uh, it's difficult question. I mean, it's easier to answer can they get there? I think, because now more than I think at any point over the last kind of four years, there is, if you like, a kind of technical landing zone where there's kind of tried and test- tested solutions that could allow both sides to get to a deal, even on some of the more contentious issues around governance and level playing field uh, that we might come on to. Even on those issues, technical kind of middle grounds do exist. The question is just whether Either side or both sides are prepared to move in order to unlock them, and I think that's going to be really key over the next uh, the next few weeks. Actually, this process with Barnier, uh, the EU's chief negotiator, and David Frost, uh, the Prime Minister's advisor on the EU, who's leading the negotiations for the UK side, is can those two, at political level, sketch out, if you like, a new kind of landing zone. Uh, for the two um, the two teams to fill in the technical detail by um, the October, but like I said, a lot of this will come down to political will who 's prepared to make uh, some of the the quite big concessions on the lines that they 've dug into over the last few months in order to get it and I mean I think coronavirus makes it more likely rather than less likely. I think you get to the autumn, and if Boris Johnson is um, having to deal with the risk of new flare-ups in coronavirus, another you know NHS winter crisis that will presumably be exacerbated by the fact that it's been running at 110% for the entire year. If he then starts saying, now we need to put all of the energy at the same way they did at the back end of last year, if you remember, into preparing for no deal, he might find that it's just another quite big thing to add to his list of things that we need to get past in the next four years. So, I think that there can be a deal. I think the politics uh, towards the end of the year, I'd be surprised if they didn't make both sides slightly more flexible. Um, But the thing that I I was touching on a bit earlier is just remember the scale of the task in actually preparing for the end of the transition period that still needs to come, all of the big practical changes. This isn't just about the negotiations this is about new immigration system new border systems businesses who will have spent all of last year being marched up and down the hill on no deal then the beginning of this year on coronavirus recovery from coronavirus and then they've got this big challenge at the end of the year to prepare for new trade lines so it is a really really enormous job i think
0: i'm sure you're right people are going to focus much more uh, even than now in the autumn, you've got uh, the probable end of the furlough scheme. Then, you've very likely redundancies and um, unemployment going going up very sharply. So certainly, business minds will be on this. Joe, your team has been arguing in the paper with uh, Georgina Wright that um, even though the UK has said right now it no way does it want an extension, it could still. Uh, achieve an extension if it um, decided by the autumn that it really wanted one.
2: Yeah. So we, we did a piece of work that kind of looked at, you know, is the is the deadline that is what will pass on Monday uh, or Tuesday next week, really the last opportunity to secure more time. And what we found was that theoretically there are opportunities to get more time later in the year. They are just much more risky. They are much more um, complicated, they will require more negotiation. it's just harder, but it's not impossible and actually, there was a story this week I think that the uk government had had also asked for advice on a, on ability to extend after the deadline um, passes next week and I'd hope that their uh, the advice they got back was very similar to our excellent IFG I hope they hope, yeah. hope,
0: hope they've got our paper which which yeah. gives them what four or five different ways of doing exactly that Joe. we might send them exactly. that again exactly. Jill, what what do you reckon? Um, I think Joe's right. I mean, this comes down to the
3: politics uh, at the end of the day. And I think actually in that, the political task is much harder for the EU than for the UK. For the UK, it basically comes down to, does Boris Johnson want and think he can get away with the concessions? He's got a majority of 80. People want to get Brexit done. I think he can basically dictate the sort of Brexit he wants in the UK The task in the EU side, I think, is a much harder task. Michel Barnier, we always think the Commission's unreasonable, but actually the Commission is nearer to the UK in terms of wanting a deal and being more pragmatic in many ways than a lot of member states may be. So he's got to to get a deal that meets the political needs of 27 member states. won't matter too much. They don't have imminent elections and things like that. But then you look at somebody uh, like President Macron, He's got a difficult fight for the French presidency next year. He's got French fishermen saying we've fished in British waters for a thousand years. We want to go on doing that. Don't give this away. So I think it's going to be quite difficult to to construct that. He went back to the fisheries minister, said, I need some flexibility. Can I have some flexibility? They said, no, you've got your mandate, which they'd already toughened up from the EU's first draft. So I think the EU politics could make this difficult The EU, I think, is already a bit miffed at the UK for not asking for an extension, which I think they assumed was going to happen uh, when coronavirus hit, that surely the UK couldn't want to be doing negotiations when it was also dealing with coronavirus. So they're a bit unwillingly at the table already. But I thought it was very interesting that a lot of the more positive sounds that have come out came out because last week we had the high-level Zoom conference between uh, Boris Johnson, with the presence of three EU institutions. And then we had that very, very slightly awkward with the sort of namastés on Downing Street first, but that uh, conversation with President Macron uh, in Downing Street and horse guards for the de Gaulle 80th anniversary, where Boris Johnson does seem to get quite, on quite well with Emmanuel Macron. I think that's one of the things we sort of underestimated uh, is that he is, unlike Theresa May, much better at personal bonding than she was, uh, does seem to have given a bit of renewed impetus. And I think the attitude of the French will be very important because, in a sense, they are the big holdouts. The Germans will want to make sure that this protects the integrity of the single market and all those things, you know. But they've also got uh, going in the UK's favour a bit, not the German car manufacturers coming over the hill, but Angela Merkel, who won't want a messy, destructive Brexit as the uh, legacy of her last presidency
0: of the EU. And what about American politics? I mean, you throw into this whole picture in this extraordinary year, you throw in an American presidential election. um, That really makes a difference. Uh, And at the moment, Joe Biden ahead. And that perhaps changing the calculation, both about what kind of deal the UK might get from the US, but also just how keen the US is to forge its own relations with the EU, where every second word in Washington at the moment is China
3: it's very interesting that i think the the u.s trade representative robert Lighthizer gave uh gave a talk i think uh, last week where he said it was highly unlikely that a uk u.s deal would get through congress before the presidential elections and that then sort of puts it uh, beyond that possibility you know who knows what's going to happen in u.s electoral politics we think our politics is weird and volatile at the moment i think the u.s ones are at the moment but at least there is the possibility of what we might call regime change in the u.s hoving interview and that things will look very different the other side
0: and, and the regime possibly including you know both houses of Cong- congress up um uh, as well um and that affects whatever trade deal they do rafael have, have you any sense of how late in the day the uk can realistically push this
1: well i mean it- in the past, these negotiations have gone right down to the wire. And I think, you know, that could happen again. It, it, you know, we, we could agree to a deal at the very end of the year, you know, even in December, provided that uh, that deal contains uh, some provisions for a kind of uh, effectively an implementation period, i.e. some uh, some time for businesses on both sides to adapt. and And, you know, it, it may well be that P- pushing things very late in the day in that in that way is what's required to give the EU, as Jill says, the political space that they need to move. I mean, I I completely agree with what Jill says that the biggest political obstacles now are potentially on the EU side, and I think that when you when you strip out a lot of the noise and the mood music about how grumpy everybody is and how many difficult issues there are, the tough sticking points in negotiation basically come down to two things. One of them is whether coastal states, including France, will hold out on fish as the price of a deal, as Jill says. And the other one is basically state aid uh, and whether the EU wants, insists on the UK uh, sticking with a state aid system that has an EU-style structure, i.e. having to get permission from a regulator or somebody like the European Commission to do a state aid before you do it rather than doing it and then getting punished if it was wrong afterwards. Uh, to me, it looks like all of the other issues that we've talked about throughout this process uh, as being really challenging, like labour and environmental standards and even the kind of institutional governance of the overall deal, basically looks like the UK has gone quite a long way on those issues. Uh, and and maybe the EU has moved a little bit as well. So to me, the question is really, how long is it going to take, you know, if, if it ever happens? Um, for the EU to little, give a little bit of ground on either of those issues,
3: I mean there is a bit of a problem that we'll focus on some of these big, you know, governance issues, and yeah, the Germans at the moment seem to have very ambitious ideas on state aid post coronavirus recovery. So it's very interesting to see where the EU state regi- aid regime ends up going to accommodate some of those things. But but there is a danger that in the rush to get a deal, and you know, there are these self-inflicted deadlines on it, that the UK does have, for example, quite big asks on things like rules of origin, which matters enormously to UK manufacturers. How much real, real, real UK content does there have to be for something to qualify for the zero-tariff, zero-quota deal? The UK's got quite big asks that Michel Barnier has said are unprecedented, and he's actually sort of right on that, on making it much easier for our services businesses to do services in the EU. That's actually something that would be quite a big game for the UK to get in a trade treaty. So there's a danger that we basically have a deal for the sake of a deal because we need a deal. But actually that, that deal is pretty thin and there isn't that much there there once we've resolved these high level issues of principle. So I think that's one to watch because, uh, because that's the thing that really matters for the long term uh, economic performance of the UK.
0: So, Joe, just to put you on the spot right at the end, uh, Raphael talked about taking it to the wire. Is the, is, is the wire uh, at uh, the end of December or is it somewhere floating around in the autumn?
2: There's talk about that taking, you know, a couple of months. I'm sure that could be squeezed down. But um, I think that if you get to the middle of October and uh, it doesn't look like we are entering the home straight, then, then there will be a real challenge. And as Raphael said, right, that trying to get an implementation period if you're leaving it that late will be critical because if you plonk a legal text down that has all of these extraordinarily important and complicated things like rules of origin, as Jill said, that matter enormously to businesses and how they trade, if you plonk that down, with a few weeks to go and say, this is the busiest time of year for you because you have Christmas. You are also recovering from all of the supply chain shocks earlier in the year and coronavirus. And here is a brand new trading environment with your nearest and most important trading partner that you need to be ready with for 11 PM on New Year's Eve. Um, it's probably not going to go down very well, but also looks pretty unachievable and um, you're, you're increasing the chance of disruption. So I would say at the end of the wire, uh, looks to be kind of October, early November uh, in terms of actually understanding whether or not we're going to get a deal and what that looks like.
0: Great. Well, that's, that's good to know as we head into this long, hot summer. And with that, that's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Raph Hogarth and Joe Owen. And Joe, my huge thanks for the last four years because this is your last IFG podcast. In fact, your last day at the IFG. We're heading off into the heart of government. We expect to see it all working much more smoothly next <laughs> no. week. When you yes, start, no, without a break.
2: I, <laughs> I look forward to, uh, to listening to all of your guys' thoughts on uh, <laughs> how it's all going from the outside, tuning into this.
0: Yeah, well, you, you, you haven't yet got your virtual leaving card and, and had your virtual drinks, uh, which, uh, <laughs> which we're all <laughs> looking forward to. Thanks for, thanks for everything. And thank you all for listening at home. If you want to hear more IFG work and discussions, and please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live, where you can find my interviews this week with Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz and Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford. You can listen at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and do leave us a review. You can find all our podcasts, all our events, all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. A heat heatwave is upon us. As he exhorts everyone to come out from hibernation, the Prime Minister will be hoping that the heat is for a while at least off him. We'll be watching. Have a good weekend.